This is Norwich calling. Welcome to the sixth Gallybegger podcast, and the second since the coronavirus outbreak here in the UK. I hope you're doing alright. Things are just fine here at Gallybegger Press headquarters, although there's not much to tell you. It's the 25th of March, we've been in official lockdown in the UK for three days now, and it's pretty quiet. Every so often a delivery truck goes up the street, every so often I hear my neighbours talking to each other, hopefully at a safe distance, and when I go outside the birds are singing, and um, it's quite eerily beautiful to be able to hear them instead of the usual noise of traffic and everything else, so there are little compensations. I'm still keeping in my head the reassuring promise that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And of course, we still have to wait and see on that. But in the meantime, to help make things that little bit better, I have a recording to share from Adam Biles. Adam is the events manager at Shakespeare and Company in Paris, and you might recognise his voice from the interviews he's recorded with Gallybegger authors like Lucy Elman, Preeti Tanasia, Paul Ewan, and Alex Phoebe. And if you don't recognise his voice, this is a great opportunity to hunt out those recordings. You'll find them on the Shakespeare and Company website and podcast stream. And while you're there, you can also treat yourselves to Adam's fantastic, searching and insightful interviews with writers like Chigotse Obiama, Rachel Cusk, Sinead Gleeson, Mina Kandasami and, oh my God, Don DeLillo. Closer to home, I hope you're also familiar with Adam as the author of the superb novel Feeding Time, which we were lucky enough to publish in 2016, and The Guardian called Dazzling and Darkly Funny. And if you aren't familiar with Feeding Time, well, I never really want to get too hard sell in these podcasts, but even so, I'd really recommend it. Among other things, it's a beautiful story of courage in the face of darkness and insurmountable odds, and also of resolution in the face of human mortality and frailty. As I say, I really recommend it, and not just because I'm Adam's biased and admiring publisher. So you can get a flavour of Adam's style and talent, let's hand over to Adam himself, calling him from Paris. Hello everyone, uh, this is Adam Biles, author of the Gallybegger Press novel Feeding Time, speaking to you from the 19th arrondissement of Paris, a week into our coronavirus lockdown, and if you're in the UK, a few hours into yours. So uh, welcome, it's good to have you with us, finally. Um, I'm going to read something I wrote about 12 years ago, and it was published in 2012 in a bilingual edition by Laoul, a superb little publishing house run out of Brussels by my dear friends Marie Lecrivain and Jean-François Caro. I'll hopefully be popping up again on this podcast over the coming days and weeks, but for now, please social distance, stay inside, wash your hands, pour yourself a drink, sit back, put your feet up and enjoy the deep. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. As much as two-thirds of our planet sleeps beneath water a thousand fathoms deep. We live alongside this briny profundity and skim sustenance from its surface. We pollute it through carelessness and also by design. 
Compelling evidence exists to suggest that it accommodates the richest habitat to be found anywhere. And yet, for the most part, we are content to remain in a relationship of yawning ignorance with it. To date, not even a hundredth of it has been explored. History tells us of civilizations whose interest in the oceans far surpassed that which has been traditionally asserted in the West. Numerous so-called primitive coastal societies had a dedicated member who could dive to extreme depths without any means of artificial support, having been hardened for this endeavour since birth. Ethnologists have likened the role played by these individuals in their societies to the role of shaman in American civilization or medicine women in certain tribes of sub-Saharan Africa. In many respects, the comparison is appropriate, but ultimately does neither full service to the diver's calling, nor to the métier of the shaman or medicine woman. The divers, for example, were not commonly experts in medicine, although they could be authorities on the analgesic effects of certain saltwater plants. Neither were they necessarily considered magi, although equally archaeologists have shown that there existed at least a handful of villages in which there was no one more important to communal life. Such reverence was rare, however. Most times the diver was a fringe figure whose significance waxed and waned depending on the prevailing macro-societal conditions. During prosperous and peaceful times, they could be largely ignored and the relevance of their status questioned, although rarely enough to see their position abolished. In times of war or crop failure or pestilence, on the other hand, their wisdom was often sought with toadying enthusiasm. What was the precise nature of this wisdom? Little is known for sure because it was never documented, and no doubt it differed from tribe to tribe, continent to continent. We are able to speculate, however, drawing not only from modern scientific tests, but also from cave paintings recently discovered in Chubut province, Argentina, and from what has been extracted from numerous oral traditions on every continent. At great depths, pressure increases significantly. The effect of this, coupled with depleted oxygen levels, was to incite fervid and terrifying visions that the divers recounted and interpreted for their people. Assuming, that is, they could return safely to shore. If the evidence has been correctly interpreted, it was not uncommon for these divers to be washed un- or semi-conscious onto the beach, or for teams of oarsmen to be sent out to retrieve a body seen bobbing on the surface a long way from the coast. Indeed, the first indication that a boat needed to be dispatched was often garnered from changes observed in the ducking and weaving patterns of the gulls as they reacted to the appearance of potential carrion. In her pioneering work on the subject, Professor Hutton has argued that there is sufficient evidence to suggest that this was the beginning of the use of birds in the practice of augury, and that later, when the Roman soothsayer examined the entrails of a bird, his actions were a ritualistic echo of the search for a missing diver in the gut of a captured gull. Beyond the travails of these divers lie the feats of certain individuals that were considered so distinguished that they have long since migrated into the province of legend. The greatest proliferation of these heroes rose out of India, China and the region now known as the Middle East, 
although examples exist, or at least existed, in almost every culture. These legends tell of people, normally of either humble or regal birth, who are reported to have visited depths far greater than even the most experienced free diver could stand at peak condition, and in certain instances were subjected to such enormous pressures that normally would have resulted in the implosion of the human skull. Other legends tell of individuals spending days and sometimes weeks cutting paths through the theretofore trackless deep, without once coming up for air. Among the most fettered was the Semitic boatswain of a fishing vessel, who spent 40 days trawling the benthos to return with the message that his crew should forget about the fish and turn their attention to men. The crew greeted him with a loyal but somewhat baffled response, a bafflement that has persisted in the hearts of all but the most enlightened sailors to this day. A second hero, equally though differently praised, was a son of the chief of Kapilvatsu, a small principality believed to have been in present-day Nepal. He is said to have passed seven subaqueous weeks after one eventful night of contemplation beneath a bow tree. Whether one chooses to believe in the actuality of these feats or not, it is interesting to note that the observations made by these explorers have endured quite undiluted, some of them for thousands of years, and in many cases have exploded tribal, societal and cultural boundaries to take firm root in the clay of species-wide relevance. Another legend focuses not upon an individual, but on an entire island race that was imbibed by the waters of the Atlantic in a single day and night of misfortune. The history finds its first expression in the writings of one of the greatest Hellenic mariners, in which he documents a conversation overheard when he was still a deckhand between his then-captain, the politicians Critias and Homocrates, and the explorer Timaeus. This island of Atlas was home to a once great race of people whose descent into corruption and militarism led them to wage a war with the citizens of Athens, during which the gods, with Poseidon at the helm, saw fit to demonstrate that their favour lay always with the peacemakers by inciting violent earthquakes and floods that not only devoured the island, but also dragged all the warlike men of Athens into the abyss. In later European and latterly North American society, attention turned principally landward, with only polite and somewhat timorous lip service paid to the forces of the deep sea. In Britain, they harnessed but one small portion of its power to conquer a quarter of the world's landmass, which, through naivety, they credited as being a quarter of the world. But in a response typical of the warmongering mindset, and accepting the occasional interruption of wedding parties by old seafaring men compelled by cruel fate to share their hard-won knowledge of the terrors of below, failed to pay any attention to the morass of churning dark energy that extended for leagues beneath their hulls. How much human misery might have been spared if they had spent more time looking down into their own waters, rather than across the sea to other lands, lies outside the already sprawling remit of this study. In America, when the ground ceased to satisfy, they turned their noses skyward and built up hundreds and hundreds of yards. Yet when even the lightning conductors of their behemoths failed to puncture heaven and send God's light streaming majestically in, cleansing the world of heathens and purifying souls, a grand new plan was spun and the space program was born. When, ultimately, the moon was revealed to be quite what most people had openly expected, a giant spherical rock, and when no marked increase in human happiness was plotted, even after a stream of courageous men had bounced about on its surface, 
Some wise people suggested that more attention should have been given over to exploring the depths that surround us, particularly considering that we knew, and still know, more about our disconsolate satellite than we do about the ocean floor. Since so much time and significantly money had been invested in this upward thrust, however, all such suggestions were quietly, if somewhat brusquely, dismissed. In this historical climate, it remains a wonder that some souls, whose interest in the sea was at times as profound as the very deepest waters, were able to make themselves heard at all. And yet there are voices that have endured despite the opposing clamour. An excellent example was a young man from the city of Manhattan, who, in the middle of the 19th century, set to sea out of Nantucket. This young sailor, buoyed by the belief that the world's a ship on its passage out and not a voyage complete, found himself on a ship baptised Pequod, in the company of men, one man above all, each of whom had fought their own deeply wounding battles with the sub-Pelagian darkness. History has often shown that, as important as the quality of a great mind is, of equal importance is the company kept. This young man, fortuitously finding himself in such great company, was ideally positioned to observe that, concentrating too much upon a single horror, even one so maliciously intelligent and brazen enough as to have made off with one's leg, will more than likely see a fellow pulled under to finish the short remainder of his life submerged in the gloom. In 1856, five years after this young whaler's account was published to popular and critical disdain, a child was born in Moravia, then in Austro-Hungary, who, despite his training as a doctor of neurological diseases, would be the pioneer of the first scientific method of fishing and categorising the creatures of the deep sea. His activities confirmed two beliefs long maintained by the mystics of the seaboard. The first was that the rhythms and currents of the deep do not always mirror those on land, but in many cases run contrary to them. It was to the effects of these forces that he attributed his discovery of Architoithus parapraxis, a 12-foot cephalopod of which a crew member wrote in a letter to his wife, quotes, It was ejected like a missile through the surface and into the stern of the boat, where it lay flapping grievously for a moment before seeming to lose all form and, for want of a better word, liquefy perhaps as a result of the significant differences in pressure between our realm and its. What most astonished the captain, however, was that the waters from which he was so violently expelled gave the impression, at least on the surface, of being really very calm. End quote. The second of his discoveries was that with the setting of the sun a mass migration occurs, bringing previously unseen and sometimes quite monstrous creatures up to the shallows to spawn only to retreat again at first light. The doctor quickly understood the significance of this nocturnal event, namely that the eggs, laid in a resting abundance by these migrants, played an essential role in the symbiotic interweaving of life on our planet. Briefly put, we as human beings can only survive and function thanks to the energy carried up from the abyss by these mysterious creatures, which enters our ecosystem first through the fish we consume, and second through the oxygen synthesised from the creature's leavings by shallow water plants. As is the fate of every great discovery, almost as if such a reaction was necessary to confirm a discovery's greatness, the doctor succeeded in thoroughly outraging the mores of fantasiecle Europe, 
whose people refused, with spiky indignation, the thought of owing anything to something apparently so vile. Unsurprisingly, every attempt to ostracise the doctor and his discoveries was made. Footnote. Coincidentally, around the same time, the celebrated author of The Shame of the Sun, so disillusioned by the crude nature of the public recognition he had longed for for so many years and recently obtained, opened the porthole of his cabin on the Mariposa, bound for Tahiti, and forced his bulky seafaring frame all the way through and swam down and down until, quote, he seemed floating languidly in a sea of dreamy vision, close quote, then, minutes later, quote, ceased to know, close quote, end footnote. Despite the furious opposition, the doctor was still able to amass a solid and loyal crew to accompany him on his voyages, many of whom would latterly become captains themselves, either in the doctor's expanded fleet or in ships of their own. Of particular interest was his first mate, a medical man also and a fellow Germanophone, but not an Austro-Hungarian, rather a Swiss from the town of Keswil, but living in Zurich at the time of his first voyage. At first a firm advocate of the doctor's deep-sea fishing techniques, techniques to which we not only owe the discovery of Archetoithus parapraxis, but also Saccharpharynx libidinus of the stupendous Gulper eel family and Lophiform neurosi, a subgenus of anglerfish, he later began to perceive certain limitations. Two principal concerns dogged the Swiss. First was the rather unsavoury fact that, owing to the hugely differing pressures between the deep and the surface, all of the specimens landed by the doctor were severely deformed before they might be examined, and many of them died even before reaching the ship. His second concern was a nagging belief that, despite his ruthless pioneering, the doctor had failed to hit bottom, that there existed something deeper and more essential than the continental slope which the doctor, he believed, refused to acknowledge. The relationship between the captain and his ambitious first mate started to sour when, acting alone, the Swiss invested in his own schooner and contracted the construction of an underwater vehicle, a bathysphere of his own design. For a time the men continued to correspond, and to keep each other updated on their respective discoveries, as the following extract from their collected correspondence demonstrates. The Swiss wrote, quote, A quick word to let you know that I am still alive. I am having grisly fights with the Hydra, and not all its heads are cut off yet. Sometimes I feel like calling for your help when I am too hard-pressed by the welter of material. So far I have managed to suppress the urge. I hope to reach dry land in the not-too-distant future. End quote. Within two years, by 1914, however, their communication had ceased. What then came of the Swiss's research, and of what welter of material did he write? According to his logbooks, which he published from regularly after his repeated subaquatic voyages, beyond the continental slope, which descends gradually to a depth of 4,000 metres, lies the abyssal plain. Scored with massive trenches and sprouting legions of towering chimneys that pirouette sulphurous water as hot as molten lead, it forms the rocky noyau of our planet. It is a world of pitch blackness, populated by grim creatures of simplistic primal build. Like Eptatretus goliath, a species of hagfish, a huge cartilaginous worm that can tie itself in knots to better permit its teeth to rasp into the dead flesh of deep-sea carrion.
It was here, more than two miles down, in the crystal-clear waters of the abyss, amongst hot vents and cold seeps, in this world of black punctuated only by the occasional blast of bioluminescence, that the Swiss believed he had unearthed the origins and principal driving forces of our existence. Sulphur-eating life-forms that took their energy not from the sun, the grand exterior, as it was once asserted that all life must, but from the infernal, seething interior, the molten core of energy that shifts and churns deep within. By the time that the Swiss hit the abyssal plain, the discoveries of his master had started bedding down in the public consciousness, thanks, in part, to their popularising interpretation by noted cartoonists of the day. The effect of these interpretations was to render the somewhat disconcerting reality of what lay beneath the water's surface a great deal more comfortable, but also, regrettably, a great deal less like reality. The nadir was reached, perhaps, with the employment of Sacopharynx libidinus, a remarkably proportioned predator whose mouth, several feet wide, hangs open in the water, attendant upon the careless entrance of small and not-so-small prey, in a newspaper advertisement for an indigestion remedy. Within the span of a few years, those who had refused even to meet the doctor had reinvented themselves as authorities on matters of the deep, whilst those who could still not stomach his advances chose to attack these straw-dull experts rather than grapple directly with the doctor's rigging raped hands. Whilst the doctor himself had made tens of thousands of voyages in his decades of seafaring, within a few years most of the hot air being generated about the deep, hot air enough to balloon the sails of the most impressive armada, was coming out of two opposing camps, both of which were stuffed with members who couldn't even tell you in which direction the coast lay. It was also around this time that the descendants of the first mate of the Pequod, whose relationship with the Deep had been decidedly on-off for several years, turned their backs on seafaring for good and ploughed all of their money into a coffee house in Seattle. It remains heartening to point out, however, that even in this climate, when tides of verbiage, like the blast wind of an atom bomb, seem to vaporise everything with which they made contact, that some figures rise up undamaged, unaffected by the onslaught. It is impossible to generalise about these men and women, for it is precisely their autonomy, their distinction from everything that surrounds them, that is the source of their strength. I will, however, speak briefly of two adventurers that come to mind, but with the caveat that they are not, indeed by their nature, could not be representative. The first was a fisherman in the evening of life from the small village of Kohima, just outside Havana, Cuba. He was just a boy when the doctor began his voyages, and never read his reports. However, in his own unschooled manner, he had developed a rapport with the sea to match the doctor's. He considered himself a simple pescador, and no one thought to question his judgment until an American, an unlikely artist, a rugged, drunken brawler and veteran of the Spanish Civil War, installed himself in the cabin next door. As though fortune felt that anything short of momentous would not serve to demonstrate to the American at once the intensity and the fragile intricacy of the old fisherman's blood bond with the sea, she saw to it that he went 84 days without a catch. Only then did she subject him to the ordeal that would evidence beyond doubt his marriage to the Eternal. An expedition of several days that saw him hook the biggest marlin ever known in those seas, only to be dragged into open water and have it snatched from him by sharks. The American would document the old man's story, 
publishing it to much acclaim, but would, several years later, take his own life. So haunted was he by his personal visions of what lurked in the depths. A brief second example concerns a young itinerant poet who, at the age of 19, found himself victim, if victim be the correct word, of benevolent possession by the muses. He did not concern himself only with the deep, but when he stood on the eastern American seaboard and inhaled, he interpreted the subtle saline aroma rising up from miles below to be one that the presaged change. Among the hundreds of other visions he immortalised in verse, the young poet saw the seas split and the shoreline shake. He saw the fishes laugh and the seagulls smile. And as the cold front of history collided with the warm, wet front of the mealy words spoken in defence of his homeland, he saw the chains of the sea bust apart during the night and get buried at the bottom of the ocean. Before we conclude, a final word needs to be said about the Swiss doctor, who we left deep down in his submersible, scouring, cataloguing and interpreting the geological formations of the abyssal plain. He died, coincidentally if you insist, at around the same time that the star of our itinerant was rising, and in the same year that the American in Cuba took a bullet to take his own life, 1961. So what of those 40-some years that have elapsed unmentioned? The Swiss continued his work for the rest of his life, plunging regularly in his submersible until very close to the end, when his health no longer cooperated. His work ethic was rigorous. Everything was examined and nothing was dismissed as unimportant to the grand flow of life below, but also above surface. As he touched deeper and deeper planes and was subjected to pressures unimaginable for most of us, at depths where the water felt as thick and unnavigable as a bathtub full of treacle, his observations grew proportionately strange, so strange that certain voices were heard to imply, and not quietly, that the interplay of intense pressure and purified oxygen had interfered with his critical faculties. Still, he remained cuttingly lucid until his death, and defended his discoveries with vigour and conviction, above all the glimpse he had been gifted of what appeared to be an underwater city. Centred around a mountain palace, Divided by three circular moats and bisected by canals and tunnels, the city was heavily fortified. Even more astonishing was that the city, according to the Swiss doctor, was inhabited by primal shadows of heroic men who lived, fought, loved and died within its walls, and whose movements sent ripples ascending through the waters. The ripples, which can still be detected today, are so small that by the time they hit the surface they are almost almost but not entirely, never entirely, unnoticeable. However, as they head shoreward and dandle across the thighs of those with only the courage to paddle where the adventurers mentioned here above have dived and dived again, they transmit to us something of the character of the deep and cause us to tremble with fleeting comprehension at the uncanny majesty of existence. There we go. I'm glad we've plunged the depths together. Thank you, Adam. This Gallybagger podcast will be back soon with more recordings. I'm going to try to tell you something about Pliny, and we'll also have an exclusive preview of Alex Phoebe reading from Mordew. That's right. You will hear it here first, which is another thing you'll be able to tell your grandchildren. Yeah.